Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 9, The Remnant. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. Find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out 15. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Getting back to the Festival of Booths in Jerusalem led by Ezra, there couldn't be a more real sense of having a fresh start. Primary reconstruction of Jerusalem is complete. The people have had joy practically thrust upon them at the reading of the law at the first of the month, a truly happy new beginning in stepping back on the way. Then they've gone straight into the reflection of the Festival of Booths, a timely vehicle designed to make our children stop and examine all that has come before. By now, you've noticed this stop and reflect purpose is embedded in all the festivals. They each have their own theme to explore. Mind your own festivals and they'll serve you well, friend. Thanks to this input and processing, to borrow images from your habitat, the people are uniquely poised and prepared to see this moment as the pivotal juncture in time that it is. And so it is, on the heels of their examining their law, their history, and their lives, that the people come back together two weeks later. Now it is a time of sorrow. In the face of all that the people have just looked back upon, the joy of fully re-engaging in life with us has given way to that which it must, mourning and confession, but then repentance and renewal. In emphasis of this being something done and experienced by the entire people, the account of this pivotal scene in Nehemiah 9 begins with those of Israelite descent standing and confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping Yahweh their God. Nehemiah 9, 2 and 3. It's not that the leaders aren't there. They're about to bring it all together in some of the most important text in the owner's manual. However, the front edge of this pivotal point comes from the ground up, a grassroots event for which the people themselves act as a catalyst with their personal pursuit of reconciliation with us. Of course, our spirit has been acting upon them these past few weeks. Note also that you don't always have to wait for your leaders to do something before you do it. Feel free to get the ball rolling yourself. It's always the right time to do the right thing. So, when the leaders join in, it's not a solo by Ezra. That there is no large personality saying these things is so impossible a thought to those translating Tom into Greek a couple hundred years later that they actually insert Ezra into chapter 9, verse 6 as the speaker when he is not. If your translation has him saying these things, it's held on to that Greek insertion. Ezra's not there in the original Hebrew. So when the leaders join in, 
It's a voicing by eight Levites as symbols of the whole nation. To remember the significance of the number eight, you may want to look back to our time with Abraham and the significance of circumcision being set for the eighth day. We created the universe in six, rested on the seventh, then on the eighth day, a new chapter of working and living begins. The eight Levites intone an epic prayer encapsulating the people's journey up to the moment in which they find themselves, which is for our purposes nothing less than a phase completion in the Abra plan. Of course, with such epic qualities ascribed to it, you know I simply must ask you to pull out Tom and look at this text yourself. Listening to the highlights we are about to note really isn't enough. Go ahead and read Nehemiah 9, please. Hit pause and then come back when you're through. After commanding the people to stand up and praise Yahweh your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the Levites turned to me with blessed be your righteous name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. A fine beginning. It's what they follow with that really thrills me, showing how well they seem to have finally learned their lesson. The prayer turns to a reflective summary of moments of primary importance along the way thus far, with commentary on our actions and then on those of humanity. Naturally, it starts with creation. Acknowledging that heaven, earth, and ocean are my handiwork, and that the multitudes of heaven worship me. Referring to angels, not stars, which had their own phrase, which you saw if you read it. Then, right up there next to creation in terms of importance, comes my choice of Abram for our special covenant. The people have the sense to know that as they lift their voices to me, they do so as part of our course-setting covenant with Abraham, and that they are a result of it. We call him out of Ur and promise him a new land for the nation that will in time carry blessing to all nations. The Abra plan is front and center in this summary prayer. As such, all that follows flows from it. Having just gone through the Feast of Booths, the Saga of Egypt then figures prominently in their synopsis. How I performed wonders to gain their release, then brought them through the sea on dry land, always a favorite. Notably absent in this section is any reference to Moses. In fact, this is all so much a function of working out the Abra plan that Moses isn't even mentioned in the summary nor are David, Solomon, or any other celebrities on the way, quietly underscoring what we've been saying all along with regard to the Abra plan's central importance. Everything else in the owner's manual is its fulfillment. I give the freed slaves bread and water in the wilderness, along with the law that outlines what it means to be righteous, with our command to keep Sabbath highlighted in the summary. As the prayer goes on, it's when I tell the people to go in and take possession of the land I'd sworn to give them that the human cycle of faithful faithless kicks in. 
Nehemiah 9.16 starts with a big but, as their ancestors swagger about with stiff necks and ignore our commandments. In their analysis of this cycle, the people also discern my repeated sequence of forgiveness, mercy, and the extension of a second or further chance, as I continue to be slow to anger and abounding in love, refusing to forsake them in spite of their duplicity, epitomized by the golden calf incident. This continuance on our part to provide for the people and guide them with pillars of cloud and fire, plus our good spirit to instruct them, chapter 9, verse 20. It all washes forward into our giving the promised land into the hands of the descendants I had made as numerous as the stars in the sky. Nehemiah 9.23, a poetic allusion to our promise to Abraham of descendants as countless as the stars. Genesis 15.5, with a sand booster in Genesis 22.17. As we've seen, it's a fitful process. When the people get full and fat, they forget from whence all the bounty has come. They disobey and rebel casting my law behind their backs, hedging their loyalties with the local gods just in case. And I step back and let their new gods take care of them, and they don't. So the people are trounced by their enemies. So they scramble back to me, and I bless them. And they prosper a while and forget me again, and so the cycle repeats. Remember, we're unpacking the Levite's prayer now. These are our children realizing and articulating all of this. It's a quintessential aha moment for them. They realize they are in the hands of the peoples of the lands because they have chosen to be there, pure and simple. Time after time, they ignored the repeated promises and warnings I embedded in the law and announced through my prophets. Time after time, our children stepped firmly off the way. As they examined it all in this moment, they acknowledged that their exile was the only possible outcome. Actually, they also merited total dispersal and destruction which was the northern kingdom's fate at the hands of Assyria. And as they realize this, to their credit, even in exile, they see my mercy, as I did not put an end of them or abandon them, for I am a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah 9.31 Even now they live in modified freedom. Ezra 6.9 admits, Though we are slaves, God has not forsaken us in our bondage. They have returned to Jerusalem, but are still subject to the distant yet keen rule of Babylon, despite the benevolence of that ruler at the moment. However, with this mature statement of astute understanding and humble confession, the education mission we've been on is complete. This compound acknowledgement, first of our faithfulness in providing all we'd promised, then of our children's rebellion in spite of those fulfilled promises, 
and finally of their recognition of the need for full covenantal consequences to come to bear, reveals that at long last the people of Israel have gotten it. Nehemiah 9.33 says, In all that has happened to us you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. Pardon our pointing out again that our children have been made freshly aware of this big picture on a course which they began as they listened to Ezra and his preaching in the town square, then to the Levites' accompanying teaching, then to the lessons found in a reflective festival observance, which, it is now clear, was not a simple going through of the motions. The actual beginning, well, we won't go that far back, the actual beginning for these people was in their choice to make a physical move. They chose to return to Jerusalem from exile. By making that choice, they put themselves physically in a place where they would hear my word again. Once in that place, they opened themselves to our working in their hearts and spirits and thus come to this pivotal moment of penitence and rededication. And so, before we look briefly at their covenant renewal, which is surely to come in the wake of their contrite insight, we promised to look at their journey back to us with a view toward tracking with your steps toward and on the way today. First, and most obvious, is what we'll call your exilic synchronicity with our children held in Babylon. You also live in a place that's hard of hearing when it comes to hearing my voice. Just like all the folks who stayed behind in Babylon, you're not going to hear our voice very clearly or at all if you remain firmly planted there in the full embrace of exile. Like this repentant remnant, you've got to get up and move to a place where you can and will hear my word. That may mean an actual moving of your household in some cases, but most likely involves your simply shifting your habits there where you are. Remove yourself from toxic or even seemingly neutral places and instead put yourself regularly in a position to hear my word, personally and publicly. Oh, yes, I delight in your private studies, or we wouldn't be doing this. But as long as it stays just between you and me like this, you're cheating yourself and me and those around you. Thus, frankly, you are not quite on the way yet. Hearing me in the way I am talking about now is not going to happen by accident and it will involve effort on your part to change your routine. This goes hand in hand with hearing me, 
standing beside others as the people of Israel did for days hearing Ezra and the Levites, then for more days living beside each other in booths, standing beside others who thirst for my word and the work of my spirit in their lives, is the surest way to the deep, lasting renewal, friend, that comes from hearing me clearly. It's there in the midst of hearing my word that you'll come to the same conviction and confession of sins that our children have just worked through in Nehemiah. Of course, I know your sins, but you need to know that I know them and still love you regardless. Just as importantly, your acknowledgement and confession of sin opens your ears to your need for me. It opens your spirit to letting mine in to start the healing process of renewal. For that is where our children find themselves now, renewing their covenant with us after so long a period of straying. You may be walking in parallel to them right this moment. This triumphal moment in our children's lives is the final step in the process that began with their hearing our call back in Babylon. These are the remnant that felt the tug of purpose and identity at their hearts at hearing the words of our prophets, which led to the choice to step away from the now-padded comforts of exile. You won't change your routine unless you hear our call. Hearing our call is the foundational start of the steps we are marking thus far. Number one, hear my call. Number two, change your routine. And number three, confess your sin and need for us. The next step takes things to the next level, which we will have to wait for until the next episode. And you've got some time before that next episode. We're letting our humans take July and August off. So we'll all be back together in September. In the meantime, you've got plenty to think about from this episode, and once you feel like you're done with that, go back to last week's Taking Time and do that. All the while, the humans may be gone, but I will not be. I will be with you as we walk together on the way. Have a wonderful summer. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. Use the link to the very first episode from our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's episode has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way, and until next time, be good to yourself.